Welcome to Office Hours, a podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Marcia Chatlin, and the concept is simple. Each week, one professor, me, and one student, lots of conversation. Office Hours, for the things we don't talk about in class. <clears throat> Today on the podcast, I talked to recent graduate of the Naval Academy, Andre Evans, about our roots and life in the military. Hello, Andre. Hello, how are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Congratulations on your recent graduation. Thank you. Thank you. So for um, folks who are not familiar with the culture of a military academy, what is it like to go through graduation at the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland? The Naval Academy is a special place. It's You go through four years of hell, per se, and they beat you down and strip everything that you think you know about life and about leadership and self and they build teamwork into you and servant leadership in my opinion that's what I got the the most out of my experience there and it's really weird because everyone wants to just graduate oh I'm done with this place I'm done with this place because the cynical mindset and the moment you graduate it hits you like wow I'm really gonna miss this place so I, I definitely tell my every time I drive by I always salute the place just because it's it's a very special place in your heart and it hits you once you once you leave out well one of the things that's interesting about i've worked at like a big state school i work at a like elite private school you know the military academies there are very few people who can relate to right. what it's like for you to have gone to college right. at a place like that and i think from an outsider perspective like i, I don't even know if we have any reference points for it. And so when you think about what being a college student at a service academy is like, what are some things that point to you you point to as like really distinctive? What's distinctive for a military academy? Mm-hmm. Man. Growing up fast. It's it's one of those things that I I'll I'll be very vulnerable. I had a I had a really a moment Reflecting to myself on graduation, when I was hugging everyone, I was like, wow, some of these people I'm never going to see again. And, and it's a different feeling than you would get from another college is because the reality is some of those people are going to go into combat situations. The people that do, such as the Marines or the EOD guys or the SEALs or even some of the aviators, and they're going to be killed. And it makes you, you have, I had that moment where I was like, is it, is it going to be my man that I'm hungry right now or is it going to be this lady that I'm hungry right now? Is it going to be one of my best friends? And so it's not a feeling of depression. It's just a feeling of cherishment in that moment and cherishing the bonds that you have with those people. So I would definitely say I say that because not it paints a picture of how we view things in those final moments, but also for the bonds that we built there, unlike a regular college where you're crawling through the mud with those people, you're getting up at 3, 5 o'clock in the morning and people are screaming at, screaming at you, hey, do this, hey, do that. Make these time hacks when you're going through plebe summer, which is our basic indoctrination training, which actually starts today for the class of 2020. And that that's what builds those moments of those people, those funny stories like, hey, do you remember we were doing rack races? Do you remember we were doing this? And so-and-so messed up. That bond, those friendships, and... Also, I would say another thing that's unique about it is the leadership. I was the, I had two big leadership roles at the academy, being the regimental commander. So I led Plebe Summer, so I had roughly 3,000 people under my command. And being able to light that fire in those in my classmates' bellies in those plebes when they got tired, when they were running on two, three hours of sleep, or even 
my last semester at the Caddy, the spring semester, I was the first regimental commander. So you, the brigade midshipman is one brigade commander. You have two regimental commanders, and then there's commanders of that. So I was in charge of half the student body, and being able to lead 2,500 people in that capacity, it very quickly you have to learn how to communicate effectively, have those powerful conversations with people, and having that selfless attitude. Because if you don't, you it will catch up to you. So I think that. At a young age, you know, 20 to 23, 24-year-olds being having to lead people in that capacity as well as maintain school is very, very different from a regular college. One of the things that I think is interesting, I know you through the Truman Scholarship. Um, I met you very briefly when you were a, a finalist, and then we met when you became a scholar. Right. And one of the things that I think um, I appreciate about the Truman Scholarship is that you meet college students at a very huge cross-section mm-hmm. of colleges. You'll meet kids who go to tribal colleges. You meet non-traditional students. And I think that for someone like me who doesn't know a lot of people from the military right. or who've done military service, this is my only point of contact. And so, so for someone like me who is outside of that world, what, are you th- what do you think are some of the kind of misconceptions that people often have about military service or about attending a service academy? Mm-hmm. Quick story, I remember when my stepdad, who came in the middle of my life, he was in the Army, enlisted for four years. He came to the crib one day and said, hey, do you know what West Point is? We started flipping out. My mom was going ham about it just because she thought the typical thing that most people would think, that the military is off war and on the front lines that you see in, in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria, and that's not the case. And once we started speaking to other people and doing our own research, we realized that it was completely different. And it's not that way. Now, there are parts of it, but I think a lot of society thinks that the military is all bang, bang, shoot them up. I'm going on the front lines with a gun, and that's not the case. Everything that you have in the civilian world, you have in the military. You have people that do mail. You have people that do money and business supply. You have doctors. You have dentists. You have the whole nine. So you have lawyers. So it's one of those things that really only a fraction of the people that actually go to those front lines and doing those things that's only a fraction of the military. The majority of the military is composed of people who support one another and work as an entity as it would in a civilian world because we have to function in that capacity too. So I, w- I would definitely say that, and I shared that story because that was our first misconception mm-hmm. too, and then we realized that it was completely different. And the military academy, is, in one word, is leadership. Well, I think the thing that is hard, I mean, I, I think I understand where your mom's coming from. Yeah. Um, you know, we are at a moment in which we see... Um, we see militarization of some parts of the world. We see these responses. People want these responses. There's a great fear of all of these things. And then here you are as an individual, right? Mm -hmm. So we can all recognize that there are these great anxieties about safety. And we can have huge debates on how unsafe or safe we are. You know, there's a lot of places we can do that deep dive. But I want to have this conversation about what does it mean for you as an individual to make a choice um, to put yourself out there in that way. And that's what probably your mom was thinking. You know, she her first priority is to keep you safe. And you as an adult have a choice to make about how you want to engage with the world's problems. And so how do you make that decision on the individual level? Or rather, how did you make the decision to go to the Naval Academy? versus other choices that you might have had available to you? I personally went to Naval Academy for my family. 
Tell me more. It was a way initially for my mother and my and my grandmother and even my stepdad, who I call my pops now, to not have to pay anything out of their pocket. It was it was fully provided for. I mean, I'm a triplet, so it would have been a lot of money to send me and my brothers to school. And even if we did have, even if we were able to get a scholarship or whatever, it wouldn't have been the same. And it was a, it was a risk because if people you you know a little bit about my back, my background, if people said, "Hey, Dre going the military," they looked at you like you were stupid. You know, I never would have thought that I would have been in the Why military. Why was it so shocking? Just because I I have always been the person to buck rules and not follow rules. I was always the kid that was always in trouble in the household and being able to take orders from someone, I just never thought, I could never fathom that being me. And initially that was why I went really for the opportunity of it. I saw at a young age how hard it could be growing up in the south side of Chicago and with the violence, with the gangs, with the drugs, and even the education system. And it was one of those things I knew that I had a chance, I had an opportunity to make it out of my hood, not only for my family, but I knew that I was a rarity doing that, going to the service academy out of the South Side, and I knew that if I made it through, I can go back and reach back and pull someone else up. And I think that's really, it was more of a selfless decision once I realized that, yo, if I make this, I set a standard for my community. Well, tell us, I mean, tell me a little bit more about why you felt like your community needed that intervention. So what was going on at the point that you made this decision? I think you're a little bit older than traditional age student, or yes, did you go in at 18? a little bit. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm 23, so maybe I have maybe one or two years above people just because I went to the Naval Academy Prep School in Rhode Island mm-hmm. before I went to the Naval Academy. I usually send that to people who typically need that extra help, Just and CPS, Chicago Public Schools, definitely didn't help me. So wait a second. You moved from the south side of Chicago... To where in Rhode Island? Newport, Rhode Island. Oh, my gosh. Okay, yes. so I used to live in Rhode I went to Brown yes. for grad school. So um, I've been to Newport. Yeah, Newport. Um, I can't think of two places yes. more different. Yes. Had you ever been to Newport before never you went? My, never in my life. Oh, my gosh. So tell, tell us about how you go from – where on the south side are you from? So Inglewood and Chatham. Okay, so Inglewood to Newport. Tell us all about that. Wow, just the people – the culture, <laughs> you're not watching your back at night. Yeah. You're not worrying about shootings. You're not worrying about gangs. It's a completely different feel. And so how how was your life on the south side, the things that you were worried about? Was this something that you felt like you grew up with? Or as you got older, you became more concerned with things like gang and gun violence? I would say it's something I grew up with. I know my mother doesn't like me speaking about it as much, but I realize that it is a testimony to people, just my involvement being a part of GDN when I joined in the middle of my life. And, and that is a gang? That is a gang, Gangster Disciples Nation. So it's one, one of the prominent gangs in Chicago. And joining that, just because at the time I really felt I didn't have a strong relationship with my stepfather at the time. And like I said, now I call him my pops. I view him as my actual dad just because I don't have a real relationship with my real father. And 
I did it for that. It affected me differently than it affected my brothers. So going through that experience, I was looking for that manhood. I was looking for that love, that identity. And it was also a protection piece, too, because there was a lot of times where I had to fight for my brothers and defend them when they would have certain pick em outs or certain people who try to go to them. And I would get word about it beforehand, and I would go and just walk up to people and just start swinging just because I knew that they were hits out against my brothers just because I got intel or, or vibes from it from other people or heard them speaking about Did your it. brothers get involved in gangs? They didn't. They did not? They did not. So your triplets. Yes. What do you think was different about how they saw the, these issues or how they saw life in the neighborhood that they didn't make that choice? Well, they stayed in the house more so. They they played a lot of video games. I was never the video game person. I still not to this day. It's just something once I play one, two hours, I'm done. Okay. You know, so, so they had a distraction. They and had more of a distraction, so they stayed in the house. And they're just it's just different people. People things affect people differently. Yeah. And I know for me, my my real father, he's he's an he was an artist and he's an architect and I took a lot of that from him. I have that had that gift to draw and that was a big personal connection for me. And so not being able to grow with him and us to draw together and have that moment. I mean, some people might think it's cliche, but that was a big thing for me. So not having that impacted me differently. And Mm -hmm. that ultimately led me to want to take part in GDM. But I'm thankful for it. It made me value the Naval Academy. It makes me value life. It makes me value the opportunity to get an education. It makes me value outreach and mentorship. So if I can go back today, I would do it all over again. I think that this is an interesting... um this is an interesting way of thinking about, you know, some of the things that people talk about belonging, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, whether it is gangs or whether it is something, you know, people who get really deep into organizations, it's about kind of where you fit. Right. And when you think about your time in Chicago, where do you think you fit in that community that you were able to leave it behind? Just to be clear, fit now or fit in the past? Fit in the past. In the past, it just felt you were just in, the, in it, just doing what you could to make it through. That's how I, at least that's how I felt going through grammar school, going through high school. Okay, I'm in this place. There's a lot going on around me. I know it's not positive, but I know I've got parents and a godmother and a grandmother and two aunties and two uncles who are supporting me and praying for me. And I got to give them a return on their investment. My mother, you know what, it's, she put too much in for me, for, for me not to be great, for me not to do something with my life. So I have to, I have to, I have to make that up to her. So what was the turning point? Because it's, it, it, it's a, it's a huge leap yeah. to say that you want to kind of be with your people Mm-hmm. in Chicago, and then now you're on your way to a bus or a plane or a van to Newport, Rhode Island. So what were the kind of steps that were put in front of you that even made this a possibility? Watching what, well, first, watching my peers, my friends, and what went around them. One of my friends who was a best friend growing up, his name was Richard, and there was a t- there was a moment in his life where he wanted to join a gang, and he winded up trying to go through that process and they beat his jaw in with a gun and they broke his jaw and seeing him, me seeing him after that moment and seeing how 
he had a father in his life, but he really didn't care. Seeing a lot of my other friends who were homeless, who always had to find something to eat every day, struggling to do that. A lot of people at my school slept at the school or tried to stay as late as possible because they were afraid to go home or if they were, because the housing situation was so depressing and it was a very hostile environment. So that initially, seeing that was a big motivation for why I wanted to leave Chicago and it made me value the ideals and the love that my my mother and my pops and my grandmother instilled in me and at that that level. But also I started seeing it when we originally heard about the Naval Academy and the first time we had left Chicago was when we went to this SLS program, the summer leadership program it was a, a week long and they took a leap and they took a chance on us and they sent me and my brothers to West Point for West Point, New York, and that was the first time being out the city in that capacity and being able to see the other students and the way they spoke, the way they what acted. Was like that, what was that first day like? It was more of a, it was more of a wow. I don't, I'm not a, a big cry or a big person to wear my emotion on my face. I do a lot of it internally. Mm-hmm. But it was, I, I, I would say the best way I could describe it is you crying inside, just like, wow. The, the world really is different, and it, and it makes sense. When you're coming from the South Side, kids, can they can only dream what they see. You know, kids cannot dream what they cannot see. And so how can you dream and phantom about life if you don't see it any different? And, and that, was, that was like, wow. It, when you go there, you, you're, you're saying to yourself, there really is more to life. I remember I tripped out when I saw the solar power recycling bin and it, it just I was taking pictures of it like yo look at this because we didn't have that on the south side and people were looking at me like I was crazy <laughs> but, but it, it, it's amazing right because you're like how does this work it's moments like that where you meet connecting with people who weren't you know all out to get you just people that just wanted to talk to you and you felt that you can relax and I'm not walking around who's following me it was different, a lot different. And so that was probably the second thing that really hit me and made me realize, like, man, this has to, some, this has to be different. When you talk about, like, a certain kind of stress, I think um, that, that any person who's a victim of violence and, mm-hmm. you know, threats, there's a kind of stress you internalize. And then there's this thing that I think is interesting because you're like, you know, very early in this conversation, you're like, I need to be vulnerable about this. There's also a lot of it's about masculinity, right? right. About men feeling like they have a responsibility or they have um, that the only way to be a man is to be hard and to be tough and right. to do all of this. Right. And so in, in, in one sense, um, you know, g- gangs are about a certain kind of masculinity right. and the military is as well. Right. And so how have you found a place where you can express an authentic self and just be kind of you as a person who talks about your emotions and talks about what it felt like to be in that environment and to change in a way that you have been com- you are very comfortable doing? Right. Having done the police summer rights commander role, being a squad leader, being president of Mission Black Studies come my junior year, being the rights commander my senior year. So having a lot of different leadership roles, you realize that 
those people that walk around and try to be hard and have that persona, it only gets you so far. And you see it even in the military. Those those aren't the people that, they don't have people that say, oh, I want to be like him or her. She inspired me or he inspired me. No, it's the people that are vulnerable. And I realize that I understand it takes a leap to be vulnerable with people and open up to how, about your experiences. But you realize really quickly that that's what makes you human. Because one thing that happens, especially in the military, is once you go up, whether it be a commander, a machine commander at the Naval Academy, or even a senior officer in the military, there kind of becomes this pedestal where people view you up there. Oh, so and so's up there. I really don't feel like I can relate to them. And but when you're vulnerable about your experience, say, hey, I went through this too, or this is my story, this is my background. You share a story every time you relate to people. That's what I mean, having those powerful conversations. And being humble and admitting when you're wrong, that is what allows people to open up to you and look up to you in that way. And for me, a lot of that came from being in Chicago, learning from other people that Dre you need to share your story. And so once I started sharing my story and going around and speaking to other people, it almost became a thing where the admissions department found out about my story. And I was on pretty much every weekend going to a different state, Compton, Chicago, four or five, six times, Ohio, Miami, LA, Atlanta, Detroit, wherever, just going to speak to people about your experiences. And you're and so then there's the leadership piece. You're connecting with people, but even just an outreach, an emotional perspective, a motivational perspective, an empowerment perspective, you have people coming up to you saying, hey, I was molested. I was raped. I was beaten. So-and-so in my family was shot and killed. You have people coming up to you saying, hey, you inspired me. You touched me. You have grown men in Jamaica coming up to you in prison saying, I want to be just like you. You know, grown men don't just come up to you and say, I want to be just like you, and he's crying. You know, you don't even know me. So it's really about vulnerability and sharing a story. I think, um, you know, thinking about what you have been able to do through kind of telling your story and, and talking about the different communities you go to, I think it's interesting. So you're probably talking to a lot of little kids, some high school men, but also men in prison. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about spending time with incarcerated people. Mm-hmm. What element has that brought in thinking about the way you talk about your past? When you speak with those different people at various age groups, once again, it makes you realize the importance of sharing your story in general. And it makes you want to, every time you have a conversation with people, be as open as possible. I would say that is what I get the most out of those situations because every story is unique, but you also learn from people too having those conversations. But I would say the number one thing is continuously being vulnerable, continuously being humble. You know, you start with humility, you act with humility, you end with humility. So saying that to yourself every day because that allows you to view every person as powerful because everyone, every person is powerful. If you really... If you you go to Africa, and I I was reading a book, and a gentleman was describing how he went to Africa, and a lot of the kids say, you know, they have the powerful, the the power of playing drums. He has the power of speaking. He has the power of being fast. And I found it very interesting that the kid was describing people as powers, and that's how I view 
people, no matter who you meet. Sometimes I know certain people edge you wrong, and you're like, yo, I can't stand that person, but you really have to think of it from a true humility, in my opinion, is being able to step outside your emotions and how the person makes you feel and look at it as they're powerful in some way and in some way I can learn from them. Well, when we talk about power um, and we talk about what's available to young people, what's available to black people, what's available to black people in Chicago, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're part of a long history of black people who have found um, opportunity through military service. And when we think about... um, we think about the military academies and their history with black people in them, mm-hmm. that is a different story, right? So many black people enlisted or were drafted and they made a pathway that way. But the service academies are often seen as something apart, right? Yeah. This is where leadership is made. And so as a black person at the U.S. Naval Academy, um, you know, your, your past beside, outside of that, how do you navigate, you know, those dynamics? That's a different conversation within itself. We've actually had a conversation at the Naval Academy about this. A lot of the minorities, even the women, I view them as one because they have a whole different struggle. Because yes, some, some people don't even think the woman should be there, which is absurd to me. Some of the best leaders, actually, all my primary mentors are ladies. Mm-hmm. And I've had racist things said to me at the academy. I've been through a lot of racist remarks and racist situations at the Naval Academy, but I view it as a two way street. And this is something I have been trying to speak to some of the African Americans and the minorities at the Naval Academy is that you're in charge of your emotions and your attitude. You know, and although it may be present, I have to take a step back and put myself in that person's shoes, such as, for example, and they make a remark. Let's say they say nigga this or that, or they might say another word or whatever or comments. I have to take a step back and maybe think to myself, well, from their area, if they're used to saying that, that's real for them. The same way I remember when I went to the NAPS, the prep school, and people would throw up fake gang signs, I would get pissed. But then I had to take a step back and realize that they don't live that life. They don't understand that life. So how can I expect them to? The same way someone wouldn't relate to a soldier in Iraq that's going through that or relate with a SEAL because they don't live that life. So a part of me has to look back and look, hey, I can't get totally pissed with them because they don't understand that the same way they don't understand the black culture and what will go it's in a typical black culture, some of the culture and some of the customs the same way Hispanics have their own. So does it make it right? No, I will, in a calm and professional mind, say, hey, that's not cool. You're not going to say that. That's degrading. And address the situation, but I'm not going to blow up. I'm not going to let that be a crutch. And I think a lot of people, not a, the majority, not all, but I would say the vast majority of the minorities in the African Americans particularly used as a crutch at the Naval Academy even there of why they can't perform, why they can't succeed and you see a lot of minorities trying to flock together and that's okay, it's okay to deal with that but you place yourself in a box and you, because in the real world you can't do that, you have to learn how to network people and that's true leadership too is being able to have those tough powerful conversations with people and being able to 
have them teach them the right way. So, hey, like, I understand that that was cool where you come from, but that's not cool. And I've seen people change. I've seen people go the other way. I've seen people, I've seen African-Americans who understand that concept and make themselves available and know they still stay true to being African-American. They're not trying to be different or whatever, and they're able to relate to other people. And that's what it's about. It's not letting it be an excuse for why you can't perform, but you can still be true to yourself. I think this, I mean, this is a, a tough one for me because I teach in an educational environment that mm-hmm. doesn't require what a military academy requires. Really? Okay. In the sense that, like, if people get into it in one of my classes, it can be over. Like, you can get, what I'm saying is, like, in this kind of traditional setting, mm-hmm. you get into somebody's face and you say, listen, I'm going to tell you about yourself. You can walk away. You go back to your dorm. You have this different, you, you, you don't have to engage someone ever again. Right. And I think part of what you're talking about is that in the environment you're in, you don't really have the opt-out option. No, you don't. So I think it it changes your um, your commitment to a level of engagement mm-hmm. that I think for other people that they might not be on the table. Because it's so funny. If someone said something like that to me, I would just be like, are you kidding me? And I could say whatever I want. But I walk away. I just yeah. go home. I mean, not as a professor, but, like, as a student. If someone kind of came at anyone incorrectly, they walk away. They might awkwardly run into each other on campus, but right. it's done. Right. But I think the environment in which you're talking about, conflict has to be mediated perhaps in a different way because there is no goodbye. There is no pulling away. Mm-hmm. And has that shaped kind of your way of interacting with people because there is a permanency into the, in the student relationship? It has. My first two years were very difficult. Mm-hmm. I was, even as that plea, you know, you're not supposed to talk back to the upper class. And I would say all types of stuff. Like, what yo, <laughs> no, I would cut people's heads off. But I had to realize that there's a way to do it. And that's all it is. It's There's a way to do it. Well, this is so interesting. I went to the um, Air Force Academy mm-hmm. on a leadership visit. And they were talking about diversity at the academy, and they were like, well, some people, depending where you come from, you can't just talk to them any which way. And I thought that was a really fascinating understanding Mm -hmm. of some of the limits of the model. I am of a point, like, you should talk to no one that way. But if it's part of what the kind of indoctrination is to, like, yell in someone's face, I'm like, that has a lot of context that you don't. You don't need to, you know, exactly. and so this, I mean, and I think this reflects me, my um, my distance from the kind of military life, but also my tensions like, oh, man, what is it like if you're a 19-year-old black person and then this white person is screaming in your face and you have had, you are coming from a context, and I would say a world, in which these racial dynamics are so fraught and now you're screaming in my face because it's part of the process. I don't know what you're supposed to do with that. And I think that's right. what you're – I mean, I think that's part of what you're talking about. Like, what do you do with that? It's, you just got to – as once I say everything, I say is remove your emotions. When you're leading people, you can't be in your emotions because when you're emotions, you make the wrong decisions and you act in a different way. So you have to be able to – it took me three, four years to realize that. But once I realized that, the way I thought, the way I engaged with people was completely different. I saw everything change around me. So it's the same concept. I realized it's a game. It is a game. Mm. And you have to realize that because if you don't learn the rules of the game and learn how to adapt, 
you will fail at the game. This is not for everybody. It, and everyone says that. Everyone or maybe says, it is for every, everyone. Everyone says the military is not for everybody. But I'm a firm believer, no, you can do whatever you put your mind to. So I think because I, like I told myself, I told myself I would never, everything I said I wouldn't do, I did. <laughs> I told myself I would never go to the military, I went to the military. I told myself I would never go submarines. They were the weirdest people ever, and I went subs. <laughs> I told myself so many different things. I thought, yeah. I, thought I would never command at the Naval Academy. And Lord and behold, I was the regimental commander and the spring semester first regimental commander. So I never would have thought. Okay. So it's, it's. I think that's fair. But I can't, I know people can't yell at me. I said, because I'm also very like, I'm like, oh my gosh, is this person yelling at me? So <laughs> I think, but I think what you're talking about is there are other things that I've done. People are like, I can't believe you have mm-hmm. the patience or the tolerance but for this. But everyone can. If you're immersed in that environment mm-hmm. and you can't, what, and you prioritize what, what will happen? Like, if you got thrown into that environment and you couldn't leave, <laughs> yeah. you will learn to adapt like yeah. all human beings do. But there are people who don't. And I'm sure there are people who you saw at the academy yes, leave. Yes, they don't. But you sometimes you have to be more patient. Some people, it might take them four years. Mm-hmm. Some people will even graduate and still That's not figure it out. But then it might be that fifth or sixth year that they figure it out. So it, it it's just like raising a child. You have to be patient with them. But eventually, everyone will figure it out. It's just how they go about it. And if it's really the mentorship, too. If you find a good mentor that can teach you the ropes, you'll figure out a whole lot faster, and that will be the difference to break. But if you try to go through it by yourself, then, yeah, it'll probably take some time to figure it out. I appreciate this conversation because this is so not my world. Yeah. Um, and I have such an appreciation for your commitment and your passion, even if I don't understand it. And I think, though, the thing that I that I appreciate about this conversation is that it's not, um, you know, the, the, you, you are a success story. You are an inspirational story. And sometimes I think when people have that, they become these like puppet, like characters like, well, and you're talking about the things that matter, the vulnerability, and that there is a lot of pain. And I think that there is a lot of grief too, because you have an old life that you haven't left behind entirely. But when you think about who you used to be, how does that make you feel when you think about, like, Dre when he was 17 or Dre when he was 16? How does it make me feel? It really doesn't make me feel any any type of way. As I said before, it's I'm thankful for it all. Yeah. Just because if I didn't, I wouldn't have been able to connect with people. I would have not been able to touch people's lives as I've been able to without the stories. If I didn't even grow up in Chicago, I won't even know how much my life would be so, so different. And I would have not been able to connect with people that way. Not that everyone has to go through some journey or whatever, some hard, some extreme hardships to connect with people, but you don't. One of my, one of my best friends, Tatiana Harriet, she's on deployment right now, but I was talking to her because she, she's from Maryland and she felt that she couldn't connect with, with with ladies and other people because she never had some extreme hardship. She had parents that was always there. I was like, no, everyone has something they're vulnerable with. Everyone has something that is very personal that it hurts to share. And for her, one of those things was just how guys approached her. Mm-hmm. You know, those those drive-bys, the comments, what they would say. It's I mean, it's and incredibly degrading. I was degrading, and I was telling her, Yo, Tati, how powerful would you be if you told those stories to young girls? 
or to the other lady, Ms. Shipman, at the academy. Different perspective, completely different, and you will be able to touch them in a way that I would never be able to touch them. She didn't have to go through some hardship. She didn't have to be homeless or anything or be shot at or stabbed. No, it was still personal. And so I think all it means is everyone says share a story. And, but, but what does that mean? How do you share a story every time you speak to people? And I was reading a book one time called Powerful Conversations that my mentor gave me, and it was talking about being vulnerable. And I was like, oh, it clicked. Sharing stories means being vulnerable. And after that point, it was even easier to connect with people because all I have to remember is be vulnerable. So when you are, um, you fulfill your service requirements and we are telling your story 10, 20 years from now, where do you, what do you think we will be talking about? In terms of what I'm going to do? Yes. I have no idea. Mm-hmm. I, maybe this comes from still that Chicago perspective, but I can't dream too far. I don't. I know that was one of the things that it was hard at first connecting with Truman's because it's seeing you. I know you know this. Just connecting with someone else seemed like they got their whole life planned. Oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go to law school. And I'm sitting there like, yo, I live my day day at a time. I take advantage of every opportunity, every moment I'm in. And I like that because it doesn't, you, I'm not stressing out because all this stuff, you, you, you don't know what you're going to do in five years. You can't plan it out. Okay, I have an idea. But I'm not going to sit there and stress myself out just because my plan didn't make it the way I made it. So right now, I'm serving my military commitment. I know that there are going to be plenty of opportunities for me to outreach to people and encourage people and speak to them and do community service and serve people in addition to my military service. And I'm going to do that as I go through it. And the doors that open are doors that open. But I can't really tell you what I'll be doing I love public speaking. I'm considering doing that as a profession, having my own business with that, just because it seems to be something I do well and that I really enjoy. I really enjoy outreach. But maybe that's maybe I'm maybe I'm not Eric Thomas or Ray Lewis. Maybe I'm not called to do that. Maybe it's something I'm good at, but maybe it's not my ultimate thing that, in my opinion, God wants me to do. So I'll just keep an open mind, and I guess we'll find out. Well, thank you. So I'm going to ask you the last question that I ask everybody on the podcast. If there's one thing you could have told all your professors at the Naval Academy about you or something that you wish they would just could have learned about you, what would it be? That they could have learned about me. Effort. Ray Lewis talks about it all the time, effort. I would say that to my professors and the midshipmen and just anyone I meet. It's not about how smart you are. It's not about the skill level. It's about effort. And people always said that about Ray Lewis. He was too small. He was too weak. But how did he become the best? How did he become the best defensive player ever? Effort. He wasn't the fastest. He wasn't the strongest. It was effort. And so I will want everyone to know that I, that I will be the hardest working student you will ever see when that walks in that classroom because I'm not smart. Thank you. Yeah. It was beautiful. Thank you so much. I like that. Thank you for visiting Office Hours. Office Hours, a podcast, is a production of Dr. Marsha Chatlin and Alex Tyson. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and only the speakers. Visit Office Hours on the web at www.officehoursapodcast.com, on Twitter at Office Hours Pod, on Instagram at Office Hours Podcast, on Facebook at Office Hours, a podcast. Tune in each week 
on iTunes and Acast.